Uh-huh. All right. Good morning. Welcome to Mount Olive. So glad you joined us today. Bright and early, an hour earlier, and still um, nothing's changed. No one likes to sit on this side. I don't know what that <laughs> has. How that? Bevan. Okay. Yeah, okay. So glad. How to deal with imperfect people. Maybe that's why. It's like it's just a little too close to the imperfect person that is up here. Uh, we've been in a series over the last number of weeks, how to deal with imperfect people. And often when we think about, and we all have, and humanity since almost the very beginning has always had imperfect people around them. Uh, there's all kinds of things we'd like to do to deal with them. But in this series, as we've dived into, and we're going to continue to dive into the words of Jesus and the New Testament writers and what it looks like as a follower of Jesus to deal with them, the dealing is not so much with the person out there, but it's actually with the person who's right here. And we need to learn how to live with the imperfect people around us. I will just say a little disclaimer regarding this series. Um, We're tempted often uh, in a series like this to take one message out from all the other messages But if I could preach all of this at one time, I would because all of it is interconnected with the others. And so if there's some questions you have or some things that you're kind of wondering about, wait till the very end because uh, God's word kind of uh, speaks to us. And I said earlier on in the series that that we have principles, but we need to work this out in our small groups and in groups because sometimes it's, when do I apply which principle? And they're not in disagreement with each other, but sometimes we need to understand that. And so that's just just a bit of a disclaimer as you hear the message message today. Uh, Consider how it interacts with the rest of the series. Now we started, just to kind of catch up where we've been, we started the series uh, with a challenge as we live with imperfect people and the imperfect imperfections that show up as secondary issues, non-essentials. We were challenged to become space makers and easily we become space takers. We get so passionate about a, spe- a specific or particular issue that we just leave no space for anyone else to have any kind of opposing or different kind of view. And as it relates to secondary issues, we are called to keep secondary issues second. That's where they belong. And primary issues where they belong, and that is primary. We hold them tightly. So we are called to be space makers. In essence, the the message was this. If God has accepted them, then we should accept them as followers of Jesus. Now, on the outset, it sounds so easy, but then we get into some of the issues that we're tempted to make primary issues, like COVID and politics and some theological issues, and we find out this is a very, very difficult challenge. In fact, it is so difficult The church, before it was ever even launched, almost split over a secondary issue. They were tempted, like we are, to make secondary issues primary issues. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 15. Okay, so space maker. But what about people who have sinned against us and wronged us and hurt us? How do we deal with those imperfect people? And this was last message a couple weeks ago. And we saw that Jesus has called us to be peacemakers. And often we settle for peacekeeper and they are not the same. And a peacekeeper throws things under the carpet, but reconciliation and peace is never made. We just carry all the tension inside of us. And Jesus calls us, and this is in Matthew chapter 18, he calls us to be peacemakers because this is what God has done. God does not take our sin and our wrong toward him and just throw it under the carpet. He actually makes peace with us. And one of the first steps in making peace, and we, we don't do a good job at making peace. Uh, peacemaking is really difficult because even if you do a good job, 
It does not guarantee peace as an outcome because it takes two to make peace. It takes two to reconcile. And this is what makes making peace so, so challenging. Even if you did everything right, you might not experience the success you so desperately desire. And so one of the first steps in making peace is confront, confrontation. And we, we shy away from confrontation, but Jesus says we need to confront sin because until sin is confronted, acknowledged, and repented of, you will not have reconciliation. You will not have peace in your relationship. But then there's the temptation. If we're going to confront people just to go around saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, like that's the goal of peacemaking, and it's not. We saw that confronting sin is not about being right. Right will be needed, but it's about being reconciled. The win, the goal, the thing we're shooting for in confronting someone is reconciliation. But that might bring up a question, well, if the win and the goal and what we celebrate is reconciliation, what if I do everything right and we still are not reconciled and peace is not made? Am I the loser or am I a loser? And the answer is no, but undoubtedly, and you know this from experience, undoubtedly you have experienced loss, haven't you? Because what you desired and what occurred were not the same. And there is this mourning and this, this grieving that what you wanted in reconciliation could not and has not come about in the relationship that you are thinking about right now. And so no, you are not a loser, but you have experienced loss because the end goal, the thing we celebrate is a, a broken relationship has become reconciled. Well, Jesus continues on. Jesus continues on, and he continues on saying, okay, so what if we have confronted, but the person we confronted about their sin, either their sin towards God or their sin against me, it could be either or, what if they refuse to repent and they continue to live in their destructive and sinful behavior? What do we do then? And this is where Jesus goes next. So if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 15 to kind of catch up where we've been. And remember, the heart behind all of what Jesus is saying, if you go to the verses just before verse 15, he tells this famous parable about the shepherd who had 100 sheep and one gets lost and the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the sheep. And when he brings it back, there's this celebration. Why? Because reconciliation, what was lost has been found. What was gone has been saved. This is the heart in which we do all of this. And here's what he says. With that heart in mind, if your brother or sister sins, either before God or you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen, you have what? One, right? Reconciliation, you celebrate. This is what you are shooting for. This is the goal. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. There's this kind of growing. You start alone, you grow and bring more people, probably for the purpose of influence. And then Jesus gets to this next concept. And this is what we're gonna kind of look at for the next 20 minutes. Jesus says this, if they refuse to repent and they continue in their sin, here's what we are called to do. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now that just sounds mean, doesn't it? 
I mean, we don't have a lot of pagans or tax collectors. I mean, we don't use those terms in, in our day, but in, in Judaism, if in the first century, if there was a pagan or a tax collector, they were the definition of outcast and outsider. I mean, maybe someone with leprosy as well, right? Like, they're just out. But in essence, the pagan and the tax collector in the, in the Jewish religion and among the Jewish people in the first century, these were the outcasts. So is Jesus kind of trashing some people? Not at all. In fact, it's interesting, notoriously, Jesus spent much of his time with, guess who? Pagans and tax collectors. So Jesus is not trashing a group of people. What he is doing is simply using an understanding in the culture. Everyone understood, oh, those people, those people are different than me. They, I do not, I, I do not align with them. There is separation between us and them. In essence, that's what Jesus is saying. When there is someone who is living in sin, destructive sin, as a follower of Jesus, we are too. And if we were to sum this up in one word, it would be this. We are to create some boundaries, some boundaries. And typically as Christians, as people, we are not good at boundaries. And part of the reason we're not good at boundaries because boundaries just don't seem all that Christian, right? I mean, people who are mad set boundaries. People who are like, I'm gonna create, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get back at you. You treated me that way, I'm not your friend anymore, right? I mean, this is what people do as a retaliation. It just doesn't seem all that Christian. So how do we do boundaries well? In fact, how do we do them as Jesus would want us to do them? And here's how Jesus would want us, and this will come out in the rest of the message. And this is the point of the message. Boundaries are meant to be an act of love, not hate. Never, ever done out of hate. And if we're setting up boundaries and stonewalling and putting walls between us and others because of some hate or vengeance, we are not following Jesus in that moment. Rather, boundaries, remember the context. The shepherd goes out to find his sheep. He wants to bring them back. Even boundaries are meant to be an act of love, not hate. So what are boundaries? So this is Webster's de definition of a boundary. Boundaries are something that indicates or fixes a limit or extent. In essence, boundaries are not permanent walls we set up between us and others. Rather, boundaries are lines that differentiate between my space, where it begins and where it ends, and your space, where it begins and ends. Boundaries help define who is responsible to who and what are we responsible for. This is what boundaries do. In this sense, boundaries create ownership. It's like, this is my space and I own my space. And you have your space and there's lines and boundaries that, that define what you own. And my space isn't supposed to go in over your space and your space isn't supposed to impede on mine. This is what Jesus was saying when he said, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, create some hold to guard the boundaries that define who you are. Treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. Now, why would Jesus say this? Here's why. Because you're one of the reasons. You should not be destroyed by other people's destructive behavior. 
This is one of the reasons why Jesus says this. You should not be destroyed by someone else's destructive behavior because that is not loving, is it? That is not loving. So what are some boundaries? Well, the most basic, basic way we set boundaries is with our yes and our no. And maybe most specifically, with our no. Right? When someone says, hey, I want your time, I want your money, I want your expertise, our ability to say yes and no clearly defines our space and our boundaries. And again, this comes up again. When someone impedes on our space and starts putting pressure on us and starts making desires of us that impede our boundaries, then we have a boundary problem. And we start being destroyed by other people's destructive behavior. And this is often the case. And when we have an ability to say no to someone's manipulation, when we have an inability to say no to someone's abuse, when we have an inability to say no to someone's request, even sometimes a good request of, hey, can you help me in this, or money, or time, and we start paying for their destructive behavior. See, you should not pay for someone's very bad money management skills. You should not have to pay for someone else's addiction. Now, will you be impacted? Of course. We can't separate ourselves from imperfect people. We will be impacted, but the moment we are destroyed, we have struggled to hold the boundary lines. So then if, if boundaries create ownership and this idea of responsibility, what does it look like to have Christian, God-like responsibility for our space and, and others? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us actually some pretty interesting and I think very clear uh, understanding of our responsibility. And I'll give you the principle first and then we'll look at the passage in Galatians chapter six. The principle is this. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you and I are responsible to others, but you and I are not responsible for others and there is a difference we are responsible to others but we are not responsible for others that is their boundary space that is their life and we are responsible to them but not for them and uh, paul teases this out in galatians chapter 6 he says this carry each other's burdens and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ, which is love, right? Jesus gave us the ultimate law, love. So how do we love well? Here's what he says. Carry each other's burdens. Whose burden are we supposed to help carry? Others, which means whose burden is it? Is it ours? Mm -mm, not according to Paul. It's actually their burden. And so we have a responsibility to them but we do not have a responsibility for them. In fact, three verses later, he says exactly that. For each one should carry what? Their own burden. Each of us are responsible for ourselves. And as followers of Jesus, because of our love, we can step out and help someone, but that burden always remains their burden. It is not ours. And when we keep that differentiation, it helps protect us from being destroyed by their destructive behavior. So as a Christian, you are responsible to others, but you are not responsible for others, which means sometimes you and I, as followers of Jesus, out of love, actually say no. 
And some of you are like, wait, wait a second. This, can we actually say no? I mean, isn't God's love unconditional? And if we're going to love like God loves, should we not love unconditionally? No matter how they treat us, we just continue to shower them with love unconditionally? I think for many of us, we have a misunderstanding of what unconditional love actually is. And so we need to go back to what God's love is if we're going to mimic his love as unconditional love. Let me say it this way. Though God's love is unconditional, our experience of his favor is not. Although God's love is unconditional, our experience of his favor is not unconditional. Let me explain it this way. Jesus has loved, God has loved you before you ever did anything. It was unconditional love. It wasn't based on your changed behavior before you were even born. And in our sin, God in his unconditional love sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. That is unconditional love. But unconditional love is not God saying, well, now that you're my children, you can just live however you want. I don't really care. No, 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 no. God will sometimes withhold our experience of his favor. He will sometimes discipline us, which does not feel good in the moment. It's often very painful. Doesn't feel like an experience of favor. Because what God says is, I will not tell you how you have to live. You can choose that for yourself. He has given us choice. But what he does say is, if you choose to live that way, you can't live in my presence. You can't experience my favor. This is why in the Old Testament, over and over, God keeps going to the nation of Israel when they're living in sin. And he says, listen, you can keep living that way, but you're gonna go have to live in Babylon to live that way, right? You can keep living that way, but I'm gonna pull my spirit out of the temple, out of the tabernacle, because you cannot live that way in my presence. Here's why. God has boundaries. They're called rules. And he says, you can live, you can choose but you will just not experience my favor in that moment if you choose to live that way. In this sense, God has been responsible to us to save us, but he is not responsible for us in the sense he has given us free will. And when we sin and destroy our lives, God is not destroyed because he differentiates from us. He is holy, he is separate. So God's love is unconditional, absolutely, but our experience of his favor is not. And so that means sometimes we will need to say no. This is why Jesus says, even if they do not repent and they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Create some boundaries and guard those boundaries and hold those boundaries. And how do we do this out of an act of love? I want to close the message by sharing three ways. And I think these are three primary reasons for why we set boundaries we find in scripture. And here's the interesting thing. The loving outcomes and the reason we set the boundary are actually one and the same. This is very interesting. Here are three reasons. There's probably more reasons. There are other outcomes as related to boundaries. But here's three that I see as, as being uh, preeminent. We set boundaries for the purpose of reconciliation. And one of the outcomes of setting a boundary can be Reconciliation. We set boundaries for the purpose of protection. And one of the outcomes, the loving outcomes of setting boundaries is protection. And thirdly, we set boundaries for the purpose of empowerment. And one of the loving outcomes of setting boundaries 
is people are empowered. Isn't that a good thing? I think it is. So how does boundaries bring about reconciliation? Well, it's interesting. In the New Testament, a few years, probably about 20 or 30 years after Jesus spoke, uh, Matthew chapter 18, 17, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth to live out that passage. And it's this crazy passage, I'll read it to you. If you think the church today is messed up, the church in the first century in Corinth was messed up. Here's what was going on and why Paul says you should treat this person like a pagan or tax collector. He says, this is what it says. It is actually reported, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. This is interesting. Paul says, you guys are just accepting something as the church of God that even the Roman pagan culture says, we got boundaries on that. You can't live like that in our culture. You can't do that in our presence. And yet you guys are just accepting it. So what is it that they were accepting? I told you this is a messed up church, right? This is what they were doing. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. This is in the Bible, right? Okay. Now, probably this man wasn't sleeping with his mom. Otherwise, he would just said his mom. Probably his dad had been married, his wife died, and then he got remarried, and now the son is sleeping with his father's new wife, which would be his stepmom. And you are proud? <laughs> and what Paul says next, he says, I want you to apply Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. And here's what he says. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? I mean, Jewish law says you can't do this. Roman pagan culture says you can't do this. You're the church of Jesus. Should you not have put this person out of your presence? Now, a flimsy, unconditional, a misunderstanding of unconditional love would say, no, 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 the church should just love this person and accept them into their fellowship and eventually our love will change them. And Paul's like, no, love will change them, but it's a different kind of love. It's a boundary kind of love. And here's what he says, and this is kind of confusing, but I'll try and explain it as quickly as I can. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, scholars debate and wrestle with what Paul is actually getting at in this, but there's a few things that are pretty clear. When he says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the, of the flesh, most likely, in essence, what he's saying is, remove this person from the covering of God's spirit, which is in the church. See, God's spirit lives within his people. And when God's people come together, God's spirit is there in a unique way. And this man is covered under that kind of protection. He says, remove him, put him out of the protection of that covering and see what it does. Why? So that... His spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, I don't know how his flesh would be destroyed and the spirit saved, but undoubtedly, undoubtedly, the desire, the reason Paul says set this boundary in place is what? So that salvation can come for this man. The goal of this kind of boundary for the apostle Paul was reconciliation. That this man may be reconciled back to God. And here's the crazy thing. History tells us that a number of years later, the Apostle Paul would write another letter called 2 Corinthians in chapter 2. He would bring up this guy's name or this guy's situation all over again. And apparently, the church had followed his advice. 
The man had repented. And Paul says, bring him back. Reconcile him back. It's like this picture of Jesus with, with the shepherd and a hundred sheep and the sheep goes missing. You have, you have brought this person back. They've been reconciled. One of the reasons we set up boundaries is for the purpose of reconciliation. Does this mean that every time we set up a boundary that people will be reconciled? Absolutely not. Many times it will not happen, but it is one of the reasons out of love, not hate, that we set up boundaries for the reconciliation of others. Reconciliation to God first and us second. The second reason that we looked at was for the purpose of protection. Now, you have to remember, this is not protection from a person. We do not set up boundaries to protect ourselves from people. We set up boundaries to protect ourselves from sin. And this is a very important distinction because sometimes when we set up a boundary for protection against a person, if they repent, our boundary remains because the problem's the person. But if we're going to be Christ-like, we actually set up boundaries against the sin of destruction so that if they repent, we can be reconciled again. That's how God sets up boundaries. So how does this protection thing work out? In two ways. Is protection in the sense that their sin could influence you and we need protection from falling into the same sin? And secondly, you could experience destruction simply because of their destructive decisions. Regarding the first one, back to the passage that we were talking about, about the guy sleeping with his mother and stepmom. Paul says this regarding their sin could influence you. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Paul's point is this, as the church you are holy, you're set apart. But if you as followers of Jesus invite someone in that says, well, I'm a follower of Jesus too, and they are living in sin, that sin could start to spread and the entire church, the entire group of believers could fall into the exact same sin. You need a boundary. As God says, you can live that way. You're just going to have to live that way outside of the covering of God's people. So protection from the sin that, might, uh, that we might fall into. Secondly, you could experience destruction because of their destructive decisions. And there's two Proverbs I want to bring up regarding this. Proverbs 13.20 says, Walk with the wise and become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harm. Notice that there are wise people that suffer the same fate as fools, even though they're wise. You know why? Collateral damage. It's not that they were unwise. It's simply that they cozied up with unwise people. And they received the, the brunt of those decisions. And this is true of sin as well. That we can experience the pain of sin simply by cozying up with those who are living in sin, even though we did not commit the sin. Rather, Proverbs says this, this is about wise living. He says, drive out the mocker and out goes strife, quarrels and insults are ended. In essence, the proverb says we need to have boundaries about what we allow in our space because we are responsible for us. We are responsible to others, but we are responsible for us and you drive out the mocker and out goes strife point being you should not be destroyed by other people's 
destructive behavior. So we've seen that setting boundaries is done as an act of love, can bring about reconciliation, an act of protection. And thirdly, it can be done as an act of empowerment. And I want to, to, to kind of nail this one home, I want to read to you uh, from a book called Boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud and John Townsend. And this is, I think, this story shows in the best way possible what I mean by the idea of empowerment. How do boundaries create empowerment? This is Dr. Henry Cloud. He writes this. He says, The parents of a 25-year-old man came to see me with a common request. They wanted me to fix their son, Bill. When I asked where Bill was, they answered, oh, he didn't want to come. Why, I asked. Well, he doesn't think that he has a problem. Maybe he's right, I said to their surprise. Tell me about it. Well, they recited a history of problems that had begun at a very young age. Bill had never been quite up to snuff in their eyes. In recent years, he had exhibited problems with drugs and an inability to stay in school and find a career. It was apparent that they loved their son very much and were heartbroken over the way that he was living. They had tried everything they knew to get him to change and live a responsible life, but all had failed. He was still using drugs, avoiding responsibility, and keeping questionable company. They told me that they'd always given him everything he needed. He had plenty of money at school so he wouldn't have to work, and he would have plenty of time for study and a social life. When he flunked out of a school, or stopped going to classes, they were more than happy to do everything they could to get him into another school where it might just be a bit better for him. After they had talked for a while, I responded, I think your son is right. He doesn't have a problem. You could have mistaken their expression for a snapshot. They, were, they stared at me in disbelief for a full minute. Finally, the father said, did I hear you right? You don't think he has a problem? That's correct, I said. He doesn't have a problem. You do. He can do pretty much whatever he wants. There's no problem. You pay, you fret, you worry, you plan, you exert energy to keep him going. He doesn't have a problem because you have taken it from him. Those things should be his problem. But as it stands, they're yours. Would you like me to help you help him have some problems. You get the point, don't you? These parents had a boundary issue. And they kept catching all the balls that their son was dropping. And they kept covering for every mistake he made. And here's the problem. Until one of those balls that, is, that their son was dropping would fall on his toe and cause a little bit of pain, why would he ever change? Why would he ever change? And in what they were doing as an act of love, what they thought, this is love, this is what caring love looks like, they were actually doing something that we call enabling. In fact, they were part of the problem as to why he had problems and continued in them and could never come out of them. And this is what we do when we don't say no to the drinking, when we don't say no to the yelling and screaming, when we don't say no to the manipulation, and sometimes there's a power difference and we need to get others involved to the abuse because they have more power over us, but until a no gets said, we can be part of the problem because we aren't clear on the boundaries that we need to set. 
See, there's natural consequences in life. And when we catch the ball or cover for someone when there should be a natural consequence, we actually mess with the nature of things. The Apostle Paul says, uh, regarding this kind of nature of things, he says this in Galatians 6, 7. He says, a man reaps what he sows. But here's the problem. If you sow sin, which always ends in reaping destruction, but someone catches the ball for you and you never reap destruction, why would you ever change? If you're always covering for someone, why would they ever change? The natural law of things says a man reaps what he has sown. If you sowed that, you should reap the consequences of your behavior or the benefit of your behavior. Paul says this again in 2 Thessalonians. He says, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. He's talking about people who are able to work, but they are not willing to work. He says there's a natural law. If you're able but not willing, then you shall not eat. Because if someone keeps feeding you when you're uh, able but not willing, why would you ever change? Later in the book, uh, Boundaries, there's this quote, and I think it's absolute gold in us understanding this enabling principle. And it says this. It says, To rescue people from the natural consequences of their behaviors is to render them powerless. That's unbelievable. Unbelievably true. To rescue people, to continue to catch balls and cover for people, and keep the natural consequences of things is to render them powerless. Why? Because we often don't change until the pain of not changing becomes greater than the pain of changing. Proverbs says this exact thing, and this is so interesting. In Proverbs 19, 19, wisdom would say a hot-tempered person must pay the penalty, rescue them, and you'll simply have to do it again because they will not change. Keep covering for them. And why would they ever change? In fact, the writer of Proverbs, who, this is all wisdom literature, puts this on the front end of things for parents. And here's how it says it for parents. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Why? Because you are empowering your children to make wise decisions in the future. Age-appropriate pain, not abuse, Age-appropriate, godly discipline can make someone so, so wise. So we see boundaries are for the purpose of reconciliation. They may feel the, the, the full weight of their brokenness and say, it's not worth it, I'm coming back into relationship. Boundaries can bring about protection. Not protection from a person, but protection from the sin of a person, the destruction of a person. And can keep us from stepping into the same sin that they are walking in. And thirdly, boundaries can empower others. Because they reap what they sow. And maybe they'll start to make wise decisions. In this way, we see boundaries are meant to be an act of love never out of resentment and hate, always as an act of love for the good of the other. And in regards to self, if need be, protection for self, because that's what love would do. So as you consider boundaries that maybe you need to put up in your life, I want to encourage you, would you be kind? And would you be clear? 
Would you be kind, but would you be clear about the boundaries that define your space where you begin and end so that others know as well? And as I said earlier in the series, in this whole series, because it's, it's such a, a, a tough relational series, is all of these principles, I believe, need to be wrestled out in community, including boundaries. And here's why, two reasons why you need to wrestle out the idea of boundaries in a small group or with others who can walk alongside you. Number one is sometimes we don't know what the appropriate boundaries need to be. We have either been overrun for so many years and abused for so many years, we don't even know what a boundary would look like. And maybe likewise, we are so angry and we want to get back at them so much that we go way overboard with our boundaries. And so we need people on the outside of us and our emotional state to help us see what wisdom and godliness looks like in creating boundaries. And secondly, you need a group of people around you because you're going to need their support. Undoubtedly, if you have not had boundaries and you start to put some boundaries in place, the person that this affects because they've been walking on you and now they're not able to is going to be mad, mad, mad. And you're going to need the support of a group to, to guard and hold the boundaries that define your space, what you're responsible for. And you can step out and, and be responsible to someone but you are responsible for you. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for your word. And this was a challenging word. This is, this is one that oh, I'm not good at. How to know which boundaries and how to keep those boundaries and to do this in a loving, loving way. Father, today I pray for us as a church that you would give us wisdom to know what to do. And then would you give us the courage to step out and do it for the good of others, the good of ourselves, and for your glory. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Have a great week. Next week, we'll talk about how we protect ourselves, our inner selves, from the destruction of other people's destructive behaviors towards us. Have a great week. We'll see you then. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.